So uh, one of the funny things about um, doing what I'm doing now is that uh, <laughs> if you listen to the first podcast, uh, first off, um, thank you. But here's the thing. I admitted some stuff that, uh, again, resonated with some people. I mean, fives, fives of people have reached out to me, and by five I mean one, and really said that they liked the first podcast. Um, but when you're talking to someone who is uh, admittedly depressed uh, as a condition, not, again, <laughs> that doesn't mean currently I'm not like sitting around crying. I will once the, once the audio is off. <laughs> But um, that's not to mock anyone who's crying right now. If you're crying and listening to my audio, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is the best prescription. But what would I know? I'm not a doctor. Um, is that it's really hard to get in the mood to do this if you're me. Uh, <laughs> which, is, which is a very kind of interesting side effect of, uh, of doing this, in my case, of almost a catharsis, almost a uh, you know, kind of therapy for myself to do it. By the way, the show is... Uh, uh, with psychotherapy with Jet Dunlap Psycho, you know, spelled like, if I knew how to spell, spelled like you're psychotic. And uh, I've heard that as a triple meaning. I heard it from people who've talked to me about seeing the picture for the show now. Um, and uh, A, that I am a psycho. Uh, and by that I mean that when I was hospitalized for my mental breakdown, not breakdown, no, this one was actually uh, the delirium uh, and, uh, and dementia, I went to a regular doctor, and then I had to, I was still going crazy and couldn't sleep, and it was horrible, and so they took me to a mental hospital, and uh, I was uh, given antipsychotics, and that was because my, uh, my diagnosis was psychosis, so diagnosis, psychosis, that could have been the other name of the show, um, <laughs> that would be, it's like murder she wrote, or what's that one, uh, diagnosis murder, or something like that, but the diagnosis psychosis would be a great secondary name for this. Um, uh, so anyway, I was diagnosed with psychosis. So I figured being me, the pessimistic optimist that I am, that I would take that as a badge of honor and a, uh, and a title. Like some people get to be a professor by going to, you know, uh, four to eight years of professor school. And uh, I got to become a psychotic uh, diagnosed as a psychotic when I was um, 37 or something like that by going to 37 years of psycho school, so don't be calling me mister. Anyway, what I was going to say was it's really hard to get in the mood to do this when you're someone like me. It's, uh, it's funny because motivation uh, to do something, especially talk about these kind of subjects, is, is not super easy uh, to just go, okay, so I'm going to go in a room and talk about my problems <laughs> to, to, to my phone or to a recorder. Oh, that sounds like fun. I can't wait to do that. I won't avoid doing that. But again, because the, the one to two people that are listening, you know, I want to make sure that they're getting their money's worth. Even that, I mean, talk about that one to two. I'm, that's, 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 uh, I don't know. Again, that's optimistically pessimistic in the sense that people have actually reached out to me, but it's in such small portions. Uh, but what do I expect? I'm not doing it for that reason. So I, I uh, was looking at my notes, and I saw in the last episode I said some stuff that was kind of interesting. And uh, one of them was um, I said my wife was a support blanket. 
and I was kind of riffing at the time, as you'll find I often do when I'm doing these, and uh, I'm not sure what a support blanket is. Uh, I don't think that, I guess that's something you would register with the support animal uh, page and then be able to take a support blanket on a airplane or something, but that is not what my wife is. That was a uh, mistake in words that I made. She is not a blanket, nor is she my support blanket. She is my wife, and I guess what I was describing last time is that I had her come with me to the interview. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is because we are friends, and I like to have her around. And, I should mention this, she produced a ton of my stuff before. So when I was hosting, and even when I did movies and uh, and TV, hope to do them more of that in the future. But uh, she produced, so not not just like support as in emotional. It made it sound like, oh, where's my wife? I, I can't walk around without my wife. That's my impression of a guy who needs his wife. Um... It was because she produces, and so she actually did a lot of the technical camera work when we were doing the interview, and uh, so she had more use than just making me uh, feel good about myself. So I guess that kind of brings me into my first subject, which is not going off, not riffing off of the fact that my wife was a uh, support blanket, but um, what I talked about at the beginning, about not wanting to do something like this, right? So... The hard thing about depression and addiction, um, at least in my experience, and I find this to kind of be universal, but I don't want to speak in generalities, is that uh, admitting it uh, to yourself first, um, and then I guess to others, I mean, that's even a part of AA. I'm not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I'm not going to try and speak to them with any kind of expertise, um, but definitely something that has helped a lot of people I know, and they have a lot of really good sound principles. And one of the things they talk about is admitting to someone that you are an alcoholic. There's not a lot about depression in that. And one of the interesting things about depression and alcoholism, even though they're not, you know, clinically interrelated in any way that I've had it described to me in my years of uh, therapy or talking to psychiatrists, is, <clears throat> is that one of the reasons, obviously, I drank is because I was depressed. And I'm sure there's much more scientific and interesting ways of looking at why I, you know, consider myself an alcoholic. Which, by the way, you're the first people to ever hear me admit that. Before, my line was um, that I don't know if I'm an alcoholic uh, because there's no test for that. There's no way of taking your blood and saying you're, you're an alcoholic and this guy's not. Um, so it's one of those diseases that now they really do consider a disease. But there's no way of really, at this point in science... Um, of telling you whether you have this predisposition or this is an existing condition in your life. Which is tough because uh, the people who may need to admit that it's something that's affecting their lives, problem drinkers, um, there's no way of them to know definitely. So one of the funny things about alcohol, not that funny, but interesting things about, or whatever, one of the things about alcohol is that it is a big liar. Being an alcoholic, you constantly think you've uh, conquered it. Um, so kind of to get back on track is that I guess admitting these things to yourself would be admitting you have a problem. And we, as people, I, I said the humans and humans many times in the last podcast too. I think I say that because, uh, one of the things that Ken and I talked about in our, um, in our interview, and I keep referring to that, so I'll put it in the links with the, with the show notes, um, is that Ken is African-American, um, you know, I'm, a white dude, more or less. I have a beard now, so whatever that is. Uh, I've actually a couple of times uh, been uh, profiled for people thinking that I'm Middle Eastern, but that actually made me smile. Um, but 
one of the things when I say the humans or humans is that I'm trying to really get in that habit of thinking of race as the human race. Um, you know, if aliens came down tomorrow and uh, we would all become humans very quickly in the sense that we would rally together, uh, being that we are all on the same team on this giant spaceship Earth, you know, we, uh, we are not as separated as we think we are. We're 99.5% the same, whether you're black, white, Chinese, Hispanic, or whatever. And, um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough growing up in the LA area close to South Central and Crenshaw at the time it was really near Silver Lake but Silver Lake wasn't what it is now back in the 80s and 90s it was a kind of a gang area I uh I was exposed to the fact that I was in the minority as a young person for so long that you know race issues weren't really um a problem for me in the sense that I didn't uh of course, you know, I, I saw people as different colors, but it wasn't something that made them more or less to me. Anyway, I really have to digress here, as usual. I could have called this Jet Dunlap, excuse me while I digress, which now sounds like a clinical bathroom situation, but it's not that. It's that my point was I called people the humans last time, and I think that, I guess, the only point there, meander, 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 um, is that, uh, meander's not my dog, meander, meander, um, my only point there was that uh, I'm trying to refer to humans as the human race so that there's no distinction in, uh, in the differences that seem to be so prevalent right now. Anyway, so with the humans, we have a hard time admitting to ourselves that we uh, have problems. And I think that social media gets a lot of the brunt of the blame in that because it is kind of this best foot forward I talked about last time, this this best self, you know. Um, we are all kind of the curators of this marketing arm of our image. And so, therefore, we're trying to show people what we want our lives to look like as opposed to what our lives really look like. And I think that with doing this show, I'm trying to kind of tear down that wall in, in my own self. Um, I mentioned briefly in the first podcast that up until about two years ago, uh, if you saw my Facebook page, you really saw the Jet Dunlap magazine, and it was editorialized. And one of my promises to you folks that are listening to this is that I wouldn't do that with my audio, and you've heard it with me, you know, going off track and saying the wrong word, and you'll hear more of that. And the reason for it is that I think that with honesty comes the availability for connection, and that's really what I want for the people who are listening to this. Like I said before, I can't tell you how thankful I am. Even if I never see your face or hear your voice, you mean the world to me if you're listening to this. And that's true. <laughs> it sounds like, to me, it sounds like BS, but I, I know I feel that. And uh, some really special people in my life um, have told me that I have an ability to speak frankly about things that maybe others don't. And that means the world to me. So that's, that's why I'm really doing this. So let's talk about coming to terms with admitting that you have an issue. When I was very young... Probably one of my earlier memories was one time going to this, uh, it was a studio, but I didn't know it was a studio until later in life because I had no reference. I was probably, I don't know, I think it was like five or six, and I was playing with these toys, and there were some other kids, and I remember having, being able to play with these toys, but not owning them. And I later found out that it was a study on dyslexics. My mom is an educator in that field. She works with people who have learning disabilities, and she's the director of the CSUN uh, Child Development Lab. So... Then, I guess I was being researched for my learning disability at a very young age. Um, there definitely wasn't as much of a study back then in the 80s on uh, 
dyslexia and learning disabilities, but there was enough of one, whereas if it was 10 years earlier, I probably wouldn't even have been diagnosed. But I had very conscious uh, parent, my mother. <laughs> I was about to let my dad in there, but I don't think he may not. He may not even know I'm dyslexic now. But my mom was very aware of it, and uh, I didn't, I haven't said it yet, but I didn't really learn to read at the level that you would understand reading as, and I still don't, uh, until 27, I couldn't really read materials or a book or anything like that. Even at my first jobs, I, um, I, I would just have someone read it for me. And, and one of the funny things was, one of the reasons I became a manager and uh, excelled in, in sales and the field of marketing, in this case with AT&T and Apple, was that I had to hurry up and become successful so someone could cut out my disabilities. So it was out of a need, you know. Um, I had an assistant who read all my emails once I could, and that's when I really became came into my own as far as um, uh, management and as far as having some kind of real marketable and and um, profitable skill was when I had someone who was helping me. But what I talk about when I say that you have to admit that you have these problems is that in my life, I didn't have an option but to admit it. So if you go all the way back to my grade school years, uh, I couldn't read in class. I couldn't read in class in high school. And so I would sometimes make up reasons. Sometimes I'd make up excuses that kind of gave me a verbal ability in an age that was younger than most. But uh, I had to admit, hey, I can't do that. I can't do that. And so saying that I couldn't do something uh, to some people would make them feel like they have failed. And I guess I was. I mean, I quite literally got all F's in sixth grade. I, I probably hold the record at that school for that. I got all F's. Um, not one grade was anything higher than an F. I guess you know what all means. Um, and uh, I was stuck down, I sent down in the library for a year where I stared at a computer screen because none of the teachers, none of the people knew what to do with me and they gave some software uh, to the librarian to try and have me be taught. And I just stared at a computer screen for an entire year, did nothing. It was like kind of like a, I felt like a juvenile sentence. I hated school to begin with, but in this case I was completely taken out of the social environment, which is the only part I liked and sat to sit in front of a screen. And this was uh, not a, they weren't catering to me, they were trying to get me out of the way of the other students because they thought I interfered with their learning because I was so unsuccessful with my grades. But I say all that to say that I had to come to terms with my inabilities early. And then as I got to be an adult or tried to get a job, I had tricks, right? So when I was applying at all the places I wanted to, I applied at like four movie theaters and I applied probably 10 times each. I'd just bring a bunch of uh, applications. You had to write them at the time. And uh, I'd fill them out at home. And then I'd fill out, I'd have one that I filled out that was kind of like a boilerplate. And I'd look at it so I could spell things. You know, like my address. I didn't know how to spell my address, even though I was probably like 16 or 17. Well, 15 at the time. I never got any of those jobs. I got a job at McDonald's. And uh, that was after like the sixth McDonald's I applied at. And uh, I just had to have words written down in my pocket. And I'd have to tell them, I don't know how to spell this straight up to the, to the, people who were doing the hiring. And so I wasn't able to hide behind that. And then when I got older, when I, you know, I, there was no hiding it with other people. If I sent you a text later in life, it didn't make any sense. And people would be like, what is this guy doing? Is he drunk? And it wasn't. It's was just I couldn't spell, read, or write, you know, to the extent that I should have. Uh, at the age of 20, about 23, I took a test with the uh, Department of, of Rehab, uh, which is with the state used to be called the Learning Disabled Center at colleges, uh, city colleges. And basically what that was was 40 hours of testing to prove, not to prove, 
but to verify my learning disability. And it showed very clearly that I had dyslexia. And I remember one part of this test, I scored, uh, it was, uh, you know, like a curve and um, it had zero to like 10. And I guess most people fall around the eight or seven spot. And I was uh, penciled in below zero. And I remember asking the proctor or the teacher or whatever it was, I guess the proctor, I, I said, how can I be below zero? I said, that's really harsh. Why would you do that to me? And she said, it's, it's not personal, which of course it is. I mean, if it's under zero, I don't know how this person wasn't just saying she hated me. Maybe that's just my insecurity. But um, she said, I literally lowered the curve um, in the sense that no one had scored as low as I had. So I excelled so greatly at being bad at something that I just set the ground standard in, in that testing, which was pretty harsh for a guy who was working full time, moved out of his parents, when he, uh, parents' house when he was 18, and finds out, you know, in his early 20s that he is so, um, it's not stupid, you know, I realize that at this point in my life, but so learning disabled that he is setting the new standard uh, for the minimum in, in standardized testing for, uh, for people who have learning disabilities. So it's not even what you would think of as folks that have a normal learning situation. I was setting the standard for people who had a uh, difficulty in learning. So... I guess what I'm trying to say there is that I now do look at these and it's funny in retrospect because it was so painful so much of these moments. Um, I look at it in retrospect as kind of a gift in the sense that I had to come to terms with my disabilities. Um, depression was one of those things too. When I, when I first saw my therapist, I had to come to terms with that. I had to admit it to myself or I couldn't start growing. And for those of you who suffer from depression or are really questioning whether or not you have a substance abuse issue, kind of taking a hard look at yourself doesn't seem socially acceptable and definitely doesn't, you know, isn't accepted on, on social media. It's one of the first things I said during the interview is that I can't write on Facebook, I feel sad today, you know, because because people, people would react to that in a couple of ways and one of them would be to be sympathetic, but that doesn't help me. You know, oh, I'm so sorry, what are you sad about? Well, that's not my condition, you know. Um, <laughs> it makes me sad to say, but you know, without the tools that I have in my life, I'd be sad every morning. Um, admitting that seems counter to what we're supposed to do, which is put our best face forward, you know, uh, kind of act as if and all that stuff, especially in males. And, and I, I think that probably today with females too. So, I mean, it, it's not a sexist thing. I, I can speak more to the male experience because I am one, but, um, and I identify as one, but I've been with my wife for 15 years. We've lived together, and I was with two women before that. Pretty much I've been in a relationship where I've lived with a woman for the last, you know, 18 or 19 years. Uh, not to say that I know what it is to be a woman, but I think that all of us are made to feel like we have to show this image of ourselves to our friends, family, and our followers, for God's sake, which is an insane notion, that we are flawless. And, and healing doesn't take place in that, you know? Um, you cannot get better at anything without first admitting that that is a possibility that you can get better. And so I guess the message of this podcast would be that I've done it and, and I had a lot of things stacked up against me. And as I will always say, I am positive there are people and I've met people there who, who had a lot more stacked up against them. But uh, I've mentioned to you that I've had a lot of friends who I've lost to, uh, oof, that's tough to say, suicide. And, and one of them was in December. He was an incredible guy, and I, I loved him. He was very funny, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. One of the ironies about comedy is that I always joke with my wife that if you want to go meet a bunch of depressed people, go to a comedy club when they're off the microphone. 
But my buddy came out here to become an actor, and uh, he didn't have success in that, which is a really, really tough thing. I sympathize with all the people who try and go into the arts, because to be rejected for your application at a job is one thing, but to be rejected for what you think is your essence and your and your talent and your calling is is really harsh. And you guys, and and I count myself as one of them, are just tough as nails. And 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 I give you a lot of credit for that. But my friend, he. Uh, he came out here to be an actor. He didn't find success. He went back home, and due to the political situation, he had a lot of fights with his family, and then on right before his birthday, he shot himself in the head. And this was back in December. I mean, I've had friends who did it earlier, but this is so recent. He was such a great guy, such a loving guy. I think that if he was able to come to terms and, and to not put anything on him, I'm just going to tell you what my perception was of the situation, is that uh, I think that if he was able to come to terms like myself with what he was and what he felt and that it was okay to feel the way he felt. I think that he might be alive today. And so I guess, uh, gosh, yeah, it's tough to talk about, but, um, I guess what I'm trying to tell you guys, and I hope that this finds the right audience is that, you know, whether it's an athletic event or something that you're striving for as a career, you do this in other steps of your life where, you know, you want to be run a 5K or you want to, you know, get in better shape. You have to admit to where you are is not where you want to be. And that's what you have to do with mental health and addiction is that take us, you know, it's ironic, but I guess, or I guess not, a sober look at yourself and say, I've been journaling since I was 13 years old, so that helps. Write it down helps me. But um, maybe you should write it down. Maybe you, maybe you don't do that. But to tell someone you love and you trust or, or tell yourself, hey, you know, this is this is something that I'm battling and it's okay. Jesus, I mean, it is okay. It is you. You can't help it, you know? So so no more of this blame. I mean, that's, that's, that's important to understand. Uh, if you were depressed and you have an addiction, you didn't make that happen to yourself, you know? I mean, let that go. Put that down. You know, this this is something that happened to you in birth or, you know, it's probably a mixture of both, but you didn't do it. So it's okay to have that, but to get better, you must look at it, figure out what part it plays in your life, and that you probably don't want to have it play a part in the future, and 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 start to take steps in the direction of recovery and mental health. And uh, I hope that this podcast continues to help you folks in that direction, and I will, as I was today, continue to be as honest as I possibly can in trying to... Um, help you understand that you're not alone and uh and and that so many of us go through this and just because we don't show it doesn't mean it's not happening so i hope you don't feel alone i hope i helped you and i can't wait to be able to talk to you next time thanks a lot